Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. And I see a red dot blinking, so I think we're recording. Uh, we're going to do a review of Desert of Paradise. Uh, we're going to start on page 17 and go to about page 27. Uh, this is Desert of Paradise by Seth Holzer, published by Permanent Publications. And um, the, the general rule of thumb is, is let's try to not read more than 10%. Uh, in into the podcast, and of course, as frequently as we can remember, try to remind the listener to go buy the book. <laughs> so that way the, the publisher feels a little more permissive about us reading so much. And although I think at 10%, that's that's fair use. But, uh, but also, I believe the copy that I'm holding is um, a gift from the publisher, so I should uh, do my best to be uh, a gracious uh, recipient and uh, encourage people to buy the book. All right. And, Paul, can I jump in there and say that the publisher is Chelsea Green, and they have a fantastic catalog. And if you find any of this interesting, you should go to Chelsea Green and look at their catalog and buy a bunch of books. So, uh, there, Elliot, <laughs> let me correct you. The publisher is actually Permanent Publications. Oh, dear. I've done it wrong. the American distributor is Chelsea Green. Okay. And so Permanent Publications has a relationship with Chelsea Green. And and so... Uh, <laughs> well, right. well, go to Chelsea Green and buy some books. How's that? <laughs> sure, sure. sure. <laughs> and, and you might get this one. Uh Right, right. Everybody, everybody should get this. And in fact, I'm going to guess that most of the people listening to this already own this book. Um, but you know, for those that don't, and plus, I don't think this book is available as an audiobook. Does anybody know? Is this book available as an audiobook? Nobody knows. Okay, so uh, our little podcast review might be the closest thing anybody gets to an audiobook. So, you know, a lot of people are going to be traveling around, and then uh, we will, we will uh, be a crappy audiobook <laughs> by, by simply reviewing the book and reading 10% of it. All right. Page 17. There is a phrase within a sentence, within a paragraph, that I want to share. And he talks about uh, water without chlorine and chemicals. Now, the thing I want to state is that as I travel about the Internet and I try to persuade people to explore permaculture, um, and we and every once in a while the need arises, and I've, I've kind of trained myself to use the phrase toxins instead of chemicals, but I'll still see other people use the word chemicals. Like, I don't like food that has a lot of chemicals. And there will always be some dipshit that stands up and says everything 
as chemicals. And uh, so stop using that word because everything is chemicals. And I kind of feel like, in fact, you know what? I'm, I'm going to just, in fact, maybe somebody can do this. While I'm babbling on, maybe somebody can Google the definition of chemicals or chemical and, and see what it says. But I think when I look at the definition, it comes back to say that that which is created through an act of human chemistry and I kind of feel like, you know, how else are we supposed to define that which is artificially created through an act of human chemistry, like like a factory, factory made, and it was a, a chemical reaction. Okay, so Elliot's got his hand up. Elliot, you have to unmute your microphone. Thank you. Unmute. Okay. Um, the, the quick answer on this one is um, a noun, a compound or substance that has been purified or prepared, especially artificially. There you go. So I think while it is true, for example, um, uh, water, H2O, I mean, it is technically a chemical. Um, and uh, at the same time, when we say chemicals, in this context, we are we are talking about something that has been artificially created um, through you know human hands. Human hands have caused a chemical reaction. Katie's got her hand up. You got to unmute your microphone. <laughs> Thank you. Part of this definition I'm reading is uh, says chemicals can be either of a pure substance or a mixture of substances. So I think the phrase pure chemical might uh, distinguish between like a chemical by definition being a substance consisting of matter. If that is your definition, it might be a mixture of many different kinds of matter. And in fact, your H2O may have a lot of other substances in with the H2O that make up what we think of as water. So if you say pure H2O or pure chemical H2O, it might really be a kind of a different product that has different uses generally, although some shared uses. You know, if, if we can look back to the book, 2001, A Space Odyssey, I don't think it was actually in the movie, but part of it was is that there was a glass of water, and he goes to drink the water, and he found it to be disgusting. And he realized that the beings took H2O from his head, and put H2O in this glass, but since it has no impurities, no, no, uh, no other kinds of minerals or anything like that, anything else in the water, that the water tasted really weird to him. So Dr. Julia has her hand up with probably something very doctorly to say. Actually, I was, I was um, going to ask about uh, sharing screens and having visuals. Right. Right, Kyle! Kyle! <laughs> Are you going to make a visual? Uh, yeah. So I've got some I, pictures. So it, I, I suppose the first thing I need to do is to give him the ability to share those with us. Okay, I think you now have the ability. Yes, he does. He's the co-host. Thank you, Julia. You're right. And now I regret that we haven't... We didn't do that. We should... Do our best to try to remember that from the very beginning. Oh, look at that. A, a picture of flowing water. Although it also looks like flowing water that I don't want to try to drink. <laughs> like, and nothing says Giardia like 
a lot of moss and stuff next to the water. Some deer came down and pooped in that. <laughs> so, um, all right. The, the, I kind of feel like, without getting technical, if I say I'm worried about water that has chemicals in it, then I think 90% thoroughly and completely understand exactly what I'm talking about. And the remaining 10% are just trying to be douchey for whatever reason or say, hey, look at me or something like that. Um, you know, so I think it's, I think it's a path. We start when, so if, if it comes up and we start talking about concern over chemicals in the water, I think that that's a legitimate thing to say. And that the thing about how water itself is a chemical is really a distraction from what's attempting to, to be said. So, all right, uh, moving on, uh, the next little bit that I have uh, uh, marked up here is just catching rainwater and storing it in barrels would not be enough, though, because rainwater is not yet drinking water. It could be used temporarily in a pinch. Rainwater is water that is distilled through evaporation, and is therefore without information. And it also takes on dust particles and other dirt as it falls. Our bodies require mineralized, information-carrying, and filtered water to drink, though. In order to obtain this, we need to enable the water to connect with the earth. Only by infiltrating the body of the earth is rainwater purified and mineralized. As it seeps through various layers of the earth, it matures and takes on the information needed for human consumption. Okay, this is something where I am an ignorant boob. And so there's this whole thing where I have to say, I have, I don't know. And, and it's like, if it was, if, if, if there was some kook saying this to me, I, my response would have to be, this guy's a kook and I'm going to take what he just said and throw it away. But this is the mighty, the glorious, the amazing sepulcher saying this. And I feel like there's so much that sepulcher has said that didn't make sense to me in the beginning and later it did that I got to say that this thing about the information in the water is, is one of those things. And it's like, there is, I suspect that much later in my life, I will understand what he's trying to say there. This, is there anybody on this zoom call who feels that when he says information that they know what he's saying. Elliot's got his hand up. Elliot has unmuted. Um, yeah, well, I have a couple of reactions to, to that in general, but the, uh, um, and Julia may want to chime in here because I gave her a book not too long ago that was really quite fascinating about how quickly animals can react 
um, and change their biology to um, the presence of, of minerals and other nutritional elements in their feed. And so um, the idea that your water has certain things in it and, you know, it has more iron or less iron or um, other dissolved minerals and trace elements or not is a thing which the body, I think, and I, I don't know exactly how, right? I mean, I, there is a woo-woo sort of element to this, but the body gets a chance to respond and, um, you know, and, and react to the level of micronutrition that is in the water. And thus, drinking absolutely purified water is not good. And, in fact, if you have a a really fancy water system, right, that does reverse osmosis and it manages subsequently to strip out all of the minerals, you do indeed have to remineralize that water before drinking it or Mark, putting fish in it. <laughs> Mark, you've got your hand up. What's What's your thing? Well, there's there's a lot of research into the microbiome of your guts as well, and I would say that that information could also just be, you know, the the that bacteria and things that that would live in your guts that can help you with digesting food, and that maybe you're picking some of that up, not only from what you eat but also what you drink. You know, there's a lot of helpful um, little guys that, that help with digesting foods when you have, like, organic food that's been grown properly. And he talked previously about, you know, running water without chlorine and chemicals um, being beneficial. Well, that chlorine is going to kill off anything that's bad in the water, of course, but also anything that's good in the water that could be beneficial. So when you have that fresh running water that is not polluted, then you don't need the chlorine or anything else to try to, to clean the bad guys out, and therefore you still get the good guys. So I would take the information part as being related to that. That, you know, for every, I think it's for every human cell in your body, there's seven bacterial cells in your body, um, you know, in your gut. And maybe that's part of not, it. Not just in your gut. I mean, there are bacteria in every part of our body. And right. the populations like are different. The population of bacteria that live on your right hand are different than the population of bacteria that live on your left hand. And people have have done, have studied all of this, so I, I do think that micro microbiotic life might be a source of some of the information that he's referring to, and that would very much explain why stagnant water is not water you want to be drinking. And there there has been, I hate using the phrase. There's been research that shows, right? <laughs> it's like there's been research that shows. All kinds of stuff, but there, people have studied a change in gene expression based off of your microbiome that's in your gut, and so I would say when you, you talk about information, right? That well, if you're given information, perhaps you're learning it, right? Well, that if that biome is changing inside of you based on what you take in, it can help 
improve your ability to absorb those minerals and nutrients. And so you technically are, your body is learning or changing um, based off of what you are consuming. So I'm going to state that, of course, there are a lot of people that go to Sepp's place because they believe that the water that flows on his land uh, is uh, the fountain of youth. And, uh, you know, I kind of feel like if that was true, wouldn't Sepp look like he's 20 or something? Uh, So I I kind of feel like, I don't know about that, but good water, okay. I do know that Sepp has very deep philosophies about quality of water, which uh, I believe I've not quite been able to get my head wrapped around it yet. And um, I kind of wonder if the the word information in this could be part of a... a, I don't want to use the word translation error, but part of an attempt to translate from something from German that was more profound in German to English. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, um, it's I, I really do miss know. having WhatsApp here. Right. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, I have heard Sepp talk about, talk many times about like how, uh, water that's collected off of the roof, don't, don't be drinking that. That's like only for emergencies would you drink that. And, of course, we know of lots of people that drink it all the time, and they say that they're fine, and that it's, it's perfectly great. Um, I think, so I kind of understand that part of it, but the part where there's information, and the part where, he, I mean, we could say when he talks about there being how water is alive, water is He'll also say it is life, but he's also trying to say it is, the water itself is alive. And when you hear him talk at great length about this, and I've heard him talk about it many times, um, I believe that what he's trying to say is not that water has life in it, but that the water is alive. And... I don't understand how that can be, because to me it's an inanimate object, and he is trying to say that it is, I believe, animate. And uh, uh, not only that, but live water is good for us to drink. And this could be somehow getting tied into this whole fountain of youth thing, And I would like to be able to understand it, and maybe I am not purple enough to understand it. And while Sepp Holzer seems like the least purple guy around, I also know that he's quite purple. Okay. So, um, it's just a thing, maybe I'll figure it out ten years from now. I'm like, oh, now I get it, and then I'll be able to explain it to others. But right now, I kind of feel like, I don't get it. I don't understand. I'm trying my best to roll with it, and then maybe the rest of it will click into place later. And I I guess I'm trying to fish around to see if there is anybody on this call that, A, understands what I'm saying about it now, agrees with the analysis, and can explain it to me so I can understand it. (laughs) 
Well, I feel like I feel like Seth is very much self-taught, and he has profound insight into the reactions of living things to their living conditions. You know, he really, you know, like some people walk into a room and they immediately will say something like, you know, you need to water your plants. Your plants are yelling at me. They, you know, they like they just they they immediately clue into the fact that this house plant over here is unhappy. And I think he's incredibly sensitive in that way. And so I think he's developed this idea of water being, you know, of high quality because he sees how it affects living organisms. And it might be it might be minerals, it might be microbiota, it might be a combination of the two, but he doesn't come at it that way. He comes at it from his observations of how it works, how the living um, plants and animals react to water in various states. So I think he could have an understanding of something without a actual physical, like I've visualized what it is, um, understanding of it. Uh, okay. All right. All right. Maybe. Maybe. Um, I uh, when he when he writes in here that he believes that the water is alive, then um, I feel like I am hearing him say something I've heard him say more than twenty times before, mm-hmm. and. Um, and I, I do remember one thing from many years ago that when he's got a pond set up with the monk, so it's got this pipe that's inside of a pond, and the top of the pipe is uh, uh, like pointed to the sky. The top of the pipe is pointed to the sky so that the water enters the pipe perfectly from all directions at the same time, then as the water goes into the pipe, and so then, okay, here's a picture of it. Yes. Thank you, Kyle, for putting this picture up. So as the water goes into the pipe, the thing that he seeks most of all is for the pipe to make this ship, ship, ship sound as it's going in. And one of the movies that he has... Um, has you can you can see it doing this and you can hear it and uh, tip 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 as the water goes into the top. Which, speaking of which, I I got to say that while we're we're currently in the throes of gearing up for our next Kickstarter, and I just got the green light uh, to put the full Sepulcher Aquaculture movie into the uh, early bird stuff, so. Um, oh, that's I'm, cool. I'm guessing everybody on this call backed my last Kickstarter. <clears throat> um, and so you know how I do this with the early bird. I'll have like 30-some things in the early bird. It's like anybody who backs the Kickstarter for even as little as a dollar gets all this amazing stuff. And so um, we're going to – we've already got – it's all new stuff this year. And uh, a lot of the stuff is really huge and profound. People have been very generous. And while we're on the topic of Sep and Water, uh, Sep Holzer's Aquaculture movie, which I believe is the best movie ever made, 
of, of all of Sepp's movies. He's got, there's like, what, six of them or something? So, um, it's, I believe, the best. <clears throat> Is there anybody who has not seen Sepp Holzer's Aquaculture movie? I have not seen Subculture's Aquaculture movie. Sounds I, cool. Yeah, I, I don't think I have. I don't think so. It's part of the three-in-one, so it's a oh, shorter it? movie. Yeah, maybe it is. Um, and it, so there's, it comes in the package where there's farming with nature, aquaculture, and then terraces and raised beds. Um, those three all, all together. I know that I've got... Um, podcast where where I was in uh, I I showed the movie I think in Beaverton, Oregon and I showed all three movies one at a time and then we kind of recorded a podcast afterwards of kind of reviewing the movies that we just saw So I, I, but those are like really old podcasts from I think 2012 or something when mm. I did the big tour Great. so alright for a while, Elliot, you had your hand up. Did you have something to add? Um, well, in regards to um, Sepp and the uh, the characterization of water as alive, um, I read that as um, you know, as more as part of a system of life. But I think to what Julia was saying, there's also an element here of just really amazingly deep pattern recognition that's going on for him, and. Um, so, you know, his ability to sort of see connections among things probably makes it seem as if it's alive. Um, and anyway, I don't really care too much about his characterization of the water as alive because um, I can get over it. Okay. I'm <clears throat> I somehow feel that his thing about the water being alive as opposed to containing life, I kind of feel like that's his that's his message, and that is an area where I yet have a lot to learn. So I'm trying my very best to be open to that, and I think I think that there that someday I'll 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 get to understand that, but I'm not there yet. All right. Uh, does anybody have anything from uh, anything else from page seventeen that they want to talk about? No. Okay, I'm going to move on to the next little bit that I have marked off here. In places where this cycle no longer functions, I can reactivate it by building holding basins which collect rainwater and allow it to slowly seep back into the earth. I can do this anywhere in the world. So he's talking about how there's a whole lot of places in the world where their water systems have effectively dried up. And, um, you know, people and life in general is suffering due to a lack of water. And uh, so I notice how he's not saying, like, I'm going to build basins which hold water so people could drink it or the water could be used for stuff. He's trying to build basins to, to get it to go back into the earth instead of running off. And then, I, you know, the idea is, is that somehow you're going to get it back out of the earth. Now, I do think that if you have a leaky basin, and maybe this is kind of what he's shooting for, is you got this leaky basin, and then, uh, you know, downhill a, a touch, suddenly you now have this 
spring that pops up. Maybe that's where he's going with all this. I do think that's where he's going with all this. He creates springs. He he is a big fan of springs. That is that is for sure. That's the living water. It definitely felt like the way he was describing it is more of a let's slow the water down so that it can, you know, seep in and recharge the aquifer in that area and then be used by everything in that space instead of just running off. Because that's like the big description and what he's writing there is that the water speeds up and starts to pull away. Think further into this chapter. Goes into that. Okay. Does anybody else have anything from page 18 they want to talk about? I underlined about takes on information, but we've already talked about that. Okay. On page 19, water is being bottled, marketed, and chemically preserved. Here I have to ask, can you preserve an animate being? Just the thought seems absurd to me. An animate being which does not move dies. Water stored in bottles and pipelines for too long loses all vital properties because it cannot take on new information. Drinking water processed in factories and by the industry does not carry information anymore. Water sitting in pipelines decays. Take a bottle with the label mineral water. The water therein sits in closed plastic or glass container for weeks, exposed to changes in temperature. It cannot be alive anymore. Of all vital properties which make water so valuable, only one remains. It's wet. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, now, I think it's it's fair to say that if there was any life in the water, that it's now gone. But it kind of seems like that's not what he's even suggesting. Now, I do know that, like, when we look at Art Ludwig's book, Water Storage... He basically describes a system where if you store water correctly, the quality improves over time. Like, when it gets to be 20 years old, it's better than when it was fresh. Um, I kind of I think that these are two schools of thought that are conflicting with each other. I think that with Art Ludwig's water storage... Then we're talking about, you know, as the water sits there over time, and if you've stored it correctly, and and he's talking about something where um, it's covered and light cannot get into it, um, and you uh, you're you're drawing the water out from the middle of the body of water, uh, and uh, so you've you've given it time for the sinkers to sink and the floaties to float. Um, then you've got the highest quality water from the middle. Uh, but, um, I mean, if you're going to bring water up from a well, and if your well happens to be, like, 
a giant body of water that's underground, then, I mean, that's going to be kind of similar, perhaps, maybe a little bit. Now, I do think there's something to be said for the oxygen in the water. So as Seth is saying these things, I'm thinking about the oxygen in the water, and it does seem like um, when that water gets to be 20 years old in, like, our system, any dissolved oxygen that was in the water is no longer in that water. Is it plausible that that that's what Seth is referring to, is the level of dissolved oxygen in the water? I mean, if water is going to pass into that monk going tip, 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 that's going to put a lot of oxygen into that water. Yeah. And any, any bacteria in there, I mean, you're going to go from aerobic bacteria to anaerobic bacteria. And generally our bodies, I don't know, I was about to say our bodies feel better with aerobic, but in our gut it's all anaerobic, so I'm going to take it back. Well, and if, if you're in Art Ludwig's water storage and you've got any bacteria and there's no light getting into the system, eventually all bacteria will die and there will be no bacteria. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, in, unless there's bacteria that can survive on with a lack of light, which I don't think there are. Is. There are. There are bacteria that can survive in just about any condition you can think of. Okay. So then, um, I, c- I can imagine bacteria that can survive in a lot with a lack of light, provided that there's other food sources working their way to them. Right. Like dead bacteria that couldn't get by before. But then, like with Art Ludwig's water storage, where it's it's 20 years old. It seems like that water has been still for 20 years. Yeah. So it kind of seems like probably no bacteria. There's no new life coming into the system. So probably, uh, you know, once once the system stopped moving, once the water stopped moving, then doesn't that mean that... Um, Yeah. That, like, probably within a few months, all life pretty much stopped? Right. So then that's when Seth goes, catastrophe, don't drink 20-year-old water. Okay. Yeah, I think the idea of quality differs in for each of them based on that. So, you know, at Arts, if the, the water's sitting for 20 years, it's the opposite of what uh, Seth is talking about. You need to have moving water, a bubbler, whatever, um, to keep that information and life in it. So one for drinking water versus one maybe for irrigation or just general landscape water. So it might have different um, targets for quality or what quality means. I, I think that is awesome. That is, that is uh, perfect. They each have different standards for what better means when it comes to water. And so, um, and um, is, do you think that my um, thought along the line of dissolved oxygen in the water could be the thing that makes SEP label it as alive? I think it's part of it. 
Because definitely animals and plants react differently to oxygenated water versus deoxygenated water. And you put a fish into deoxygenated water, they're going to die. Yeah, pretty quickly. True. All right. And if I may, um, nature generally finds a way to add oxygen into water. And so, you know, mountain streams are, you know, lovely things to drink out of because of that it is so oxygenated, whereas a slow-moving, warm water stream is, is not. Um, and this is also where beavers used to come in. One of the roles, apparently, of a beaver dam and the way water moves through a beaver dam is to pick up a lot of oxygen as it moves between dams. Anyway. So that's just another thing about water and oxygen and it it moving and changing as it goes. All right. I'm going to go on to the next little piece that got marked off. A healthy humus, forest soil, for example, can be saturated up to 90% with water. A well-sated soil has central importance in the building of drinking water. Forest fire protection and fertility in general. Therefore, soil humidity is a central topic of the whole book. I want to achieve exactly that with all the earth restoration measures to return humidity to the soil, the body of the earth. All right, so there. Now we know what the whole book's going to be about. <laughs> Um, I do kind of get the impression that everything starts with the rainwater hitting the soil and then the rainwater moving through the soil and then heading towards the groundwater through a giant sand filter to get to your groundwater and, uh, and then you're going to, you know, bring it back up or you're going to rediscover it in a spring. Which, by the way, to me, suggests, because I know, like, for example, uh, Mark and Kyle and I are later going to record a different podcast series about finding land. And one of the very first things is that I suggest is something with slope. And so if you're going to get, well, spring... Uh, you can have a spring in flat land, but I think it's pretty unusual. Um, but I, I think on sloped land is where you're going to find springs more often. And then, uh, but part of it being is that what Seth's trying to do is to basically, um, in a way, make springs where there aren't springs. Uh, and so I kind of feel like... Uh, uh, it's going to be difficult to do that if you're on flat land. And, and of course, Sepp's property is very steep. So what a great spot to have uh, a lot of uh, uh, spring-like activity. Although my understanding is is that the land that he inherited from his dad was completely dry. And um, he uh, brought water from eight kilometers away. And, and uh, when he first said that, I'd only known him a couple of days, and I was a little bit surprised to hear that the, all the water that we see on the Parameter Hof um, is imported. And uh, um, 
And then on top of that, when he said eight kilometers away, I kind of felt like that has to be some sort of translation error or something because, I mean, that's like, what, five miles? Five miles? That's that's an enormous distance away. And so apparently water is pumped up five miles away and then piped over to his place. Now, as... Part of that, though, I do know that, like, he has um, the thing he calls the witter, and that's where he, it's like a double ram pump. And so the water that passes through um, the witter activates things so that the water down in the well can be pumped up. Um, so it's possible that this water that's being brought in from far, far away is being used to pump the water from the ground at his property to make more water. And, of course, there's the funny line that he uses to say something about, like, with the witter, you could use cow's piss to pump up beer. (laughs) Yeah. So, um... All right. Anything else on pages 20 and 21? Um, on 21, I had, I wanted, I underlined, well, I like the story of Plato, where Plato is describing a, a place that has destroyed its water cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, but what he says is the desert, which have dramatically spread worldwide today, are not natural landscapes but are the result of what is left after humanity has used as many methods as possible to achieve as much as possible in the shortest period of time as possible. True. I think that it, um, as much as it's possible to enter into a romantic relationship with nature, it's also possible to rape nature. And what he's describing is a place where nature's been repeatedly raped. Um, And that's what Plato was pointing out so long ago. And then plus there's other... And then he he goes on to talk about um, the Sahara. But in fact, that's, that's the next section that I've got outlined. The deserts today once were fertile land. The Sahara used to be a green savanna sustaining human habitat. In the process of desertification, vegetation and soil life become depleted. The land dries up and the groundwater level keeps sinking. The erosion of fertile soil intensifies until all humus is gone and only sand remains. The cultivation of the land becomes increasingly difficult, and eventually the farmers leave. I kind of feel like this thing about how the Sahara used to be lush savanna and even jungle and forest, um, I kind of feel like I have to say it like 10,000 times in my life until people start to embrace it as the truth. Um, so, and it, and it seems like every once in a while I'll still get people who will argue with that. Um, 
but I, I kind of feel like with, with all of you that uh, this is pretty well embraced as fact. And now that Sep has written it in the book, and it, and it is Sep, that it is even truer than ever. Um, I know that there's some recent stuff where there's a green belt being built through the Sahara, um, where they are planting billions of trees to uh, re-green the Sahara. I don't know if any of you have seen any of that. Silence. Um, I don't know if that's the greening a desert is a different project or if that's part of it. Um, I, I, I've I heard that know, phrase a couple times. It's called the it's called the Green Belt. Uh, like it's a collaboration amongst you know ten or so African countries to prevent the Sahara from advancing south. Right, which I think um, takes me to the next bit that I've marked. But the Sahara is spreading not only south, but also north. And it has already jumped over the Mediterranean Sea. Why is there no outcry at receiving this dire news? How far north will the desert have to extend before we wake up? Who or what is supposed to stop this northward desertification? How will we feed ourselves in the future with Europe turning into a desert? Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> so, of course, you know, Sepp will save us, right? Uh, only if we <laughs> give them all the things. <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, I, I think Steph's telling us how to do it, and then uh, we'll find out who chooses to do it. Um, and uh, there will be these, and, and it's already, the, the funny thing is, is that um, early in Steph's life when he started doing these things that he's doing, they tried to have him locked up for being crazy. And then, um, then later when his all of the things that he shot for started to happen and all of this jungle started to appear on his property. Then the people of his region said that he's, uh, he just, he just was lucky to be on that particular piece of land, which happens to have this rather rectangular shape. <laughs> and that's why, that's why he's doing so well there. It's, it's luck. He, he had luck. Of, uh, you know, just the land just happened to be that way when he got there. So, damned if you do, damned if you don't. And, um, I do think that there's going to be an element of, like, at some point in time, the Karamaterhof is going to have been, um, under this type of care for a hundred years, and it's going to be even more magnificent than it already is. And then as the properties next door continue to degrade, then it'll, It'll be, it'll be really obvious that there is something happening on this farm that is different and is working. I, I do think that there's already getting to be a lot of attention uh, coming steps way for his techniques, and, and people are starting to change. But I also believe it's a long game. It's, 
it's it's not it's it's not something that happened overnight. It's something where he's been nudging it for many many decades. Like I don't know, what is it, sixty years? I mean, he says he's been at it since he was seven. I think I heard he's like seventy two. He inherited the land from his father when I believe he was like nineteen. Um, so it's it's been going on quite a while. All right. These signs are already quite dramatic in Portugal, Spain, Italy, and Greece, where the summer droughts keep increasing. The capacity to store water in the ground keeps decreasing through deforestation, and the use of agricultural monocultures increases. The decimated vegetation cannot shade the ground sufficiently anymore. Because of that, the soil becomes hotter than the rainwater, and the result is that the rainwater does not penetrate the ground anymore, but runs off. The body of the earth hardens. The strong winter rains stop infiltrating the soil and start carrying the fertile humus down into the valleys, rivers, and the sea. What is left are sand and stones. Trees die, forests burn, farmers abandon their farms, and whole districts become deserted. Because of this, you can find ghost towns all over southern Europe. Okay, surely everybody on this call has seen the man who planted trees, right? Is there anybody who has not seen right, the man who planted trees? Okay, fair, all right. I, and so when he says that, I think of the story. I've read the book and I've watched the movie, and i got to say I enjoyed the movie more, although the book, of course, has more details. Um, I... I really feel like the uh, the story of where the young man walks in and it's just desert, desert, powerful desert, like hardly anything is growing, maybe a little bit of scrubby weed once in a while, but it's mostly all just rock. And he encounters all this stuff that is indicators that there used to be water there, but it's clearly been gone for quite a while. And then, of course, the man who plant, planted trees plants trees. And then life returns to the area. So, really, the, the, the great recipe is to simply plant a lot of trees. Mark? I would say that there's the modern equivalent would be Brad Lancaster in Tucson, Arizona, is sort of along those lines where they had a very desert environment, um, not only just all the pavements, but then it is in a desert space. And they would have these heavy rains that would come through, and the city's goal at the time was stormwaters to channel that stuff away from the the area and out you know, and just remove it from the city, if you want to say. And so he then um, uh, covertly cut into the curbs to, so that that rainwater couldn't get away and started making mulch basins along the the curbs in that neighborhood to catch that water and slow it down and started planting trees that were um, native to that area and 
I'm not sure how many years later it took, but you know that whole neighborhood became quite lush and cooler as a result, and the city eventually agreed with the, okay, we won't make it illegal anymore, and <laughs> they started I- implementing some of these changes in other areas to, to try to hold on to that water, and it was effectively greening the deserts, you know, but yeah, it, I, I consider that to be the equivalent. Okay. Um, I'm, I, I, Brad Lancaster is doing brilliant, great things. Um, along those lines, uh, there was this giant doofus who uh, did something similar in the World Domination Gardening three movie set. <laughs> you were harvesting water. You harvested yeah. water off the road and, yeah. and yes, sir. it. Yeah. I just didn't do it as beautifully as uh, Brad Lancaster, I suppose. Uh, but yes, yes, Brad, Brad Lancaster's work is is awesome. I. I think now is a really good time to give a shout out to Willie Smith. I mean, mm. I think all of us together, uh, me and Brad and Jeff and all the gang, all together, all of our works are trivial compared to what Willie Smith has accomplished. I mean, the fact that he's able to prove that he has increased rainfall by planting trees. Uh, is profound, and of course now he's working with millions of acres, which is 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 like such a such a big leap in the right direction. Um, I've been exchanging some emails recently with Willie. We hope to um, record some podcasts soon, although we're we're struggling with how uh, about the time that I'm waking up, he's going to bed, and about the time he's going to bed, I'm waking up. <laughs> so. We gotta figure something out, uh, but we hope to get something going. But, yes, um, uh, there are, there are people that are doing things. And so, the, I think it's fascinating to contemplate the idea that the Sahara Desert is moving into Europe. What a, what a profound way of looking at it. I had never, I had never had that thought until I read this, um, today. So, uh, has anybody got anything that they want to talk about through the through all of our reading for the day? So that's um, the last bit I had marked. Right. <laughs> I was kind of thinking like I got to keep it under ten percent. If you want to read all, if you want all the rest of it, you got to go buy the book. <laughs> that's true. It's, it's just one example after another of of places where. Things are getting desertified. That's what the next few pages are. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. it's got Greece, and he's got projects in Greece, projects in Turkey, and then Spain and Portugal. Mm-hmm. Um, and sadly, he's not talking about cake. <laughs> <laughs> we could talk about cake if, if you want. Desertification. Dessert. So, um, oh, instead of desertification? Okay. Yeah. Desertification? The pedumpumps was silence, okay. yeah. All right, all right, all right. I just kind of feel like we were all talking about cake a little bit before we started recording. <laughs> it's like, oh, did you want to go back there? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, 
So, Mark, you got your hand up. Is there something you wanted to add? Oh, I just forgot to put it down. Okay. I wonder why right. my shoulder was sore. All right. All right. That's why your armpits are so dry. <laughs> so, um, Katie? Sorry. I feel like this map we're seeing the second, it was created by somebody who maybe lives, like, on the East Coast and thinks about the middle of the country and the rest of the country on the left there as all one thing. <laughs> Yeah. Possibly. I wish they had the left side of the drier section. Because I bet it would hit the mountains and then kind of go down towards California and then sort of be creeping up. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Portland and Pacific Northwest is a wetter place. I was going to say, if you were to zoom into where you're just looking at Washington and Oregon states, that whole map would be flipped, right? And you'd have the the bright green to the west of the Cascade uh, range and then much drier on the central and eastern side of those two states. I mean, the whole rainforest, if nothing else, you know. Well, there's still a lot of water there, but the idea about it becoming wetter has is not the case. You know, we have oh. had drought drought conditions here, and so you know the Portland area, the Cascades area, is not as affected as other areas further inland, especially on the east side of the Cascades or the Sierras. But um, it's not like we are getting more rainfall than usual. We're barely getting normal amounts of rainfall right now. Well, actually, we've finally not in drought anymore, but we've been in drought for years. Yeah, I I always kind of think it's a little bit funny whenever I hear that because isn't it? Well, first of all, I mean, granted that graph we're looking at is showing that that the right side of the United States is uh, getting wetter. And the left side of the United States is getting drier. But for so many different places, they, they're saying the same thing. Like, we've had this drought for many years. This drought just keeps going on. This drought's been happening for, for so many years. And I, I kind of feel like, um, yeah, that's, that's the, here comes the desert now, you know, and it's, it's like, I, I think that, uh, I think climate change might be a better word than drought. Mm-hmm. Like, drought seems to suggest that this year is drier than last year, but the last yeah. five years were all normal amounts of, of rainfall. And then if you say, wow, we've had this drought for three years in a row, it's like, wow. And, but it could still go back to the normal level of rainfall. But when they start talking about, like, we've had drought for seven years, it's kind of like, I don't think that's drought. Right. Yeah, it's the new normal. Yeah. Yeah. This is the way it is now. And uh, and further, I kind of feel like Sepulcher's techniques are all about how to make your jungle in in the middle of the desert. Um, and we're reading this book, Desert or Paradise. Restoring endangered landscapes using water management, including lake and pond construction. It's kind of scary, like, to see these things encroaching into the, the, the scope of the disaster. At the same time, there are so many opportunities to use the knowledge <laughs> that we're learning from the book. Now, I want to point out, everybody on this call, 
besides me, is uh, a Patreon supporter. Thank you so much. And uh, anybody else who wants to join us and be in on this, it's, uh, it's as little as a buck a month. Um, and you can be in on the Patreon thing and be in on these calls. In fact, uh, there's probably even ways to cheat that system. <laughs> I, I don't know what they are, but I kind of look at the reports and I kind of sometimes feel like, I think this guy didn't pay anything and he got all the candy. <laughs> so uh, I like, oh, no, I got robbed of a dollar. <laughs> and But, you know, uh, there's if you want to be in on this call and talk about these things, um, become a Patreon supporter. Um, I know that the people... There was somebody who was asking me about some of our upcoming events this summer. They're like, can you record them? And my response was, is, is it's like, um, I think that if we had five people here at my place that were all videographers, we probably couldn't stop them from recording it. And I think that the way that you make there be that many videographers here is going to be to um, put more money into the uh, video Patreon, and then if there's more money in that, then there'll be a bigger bounty for these people to, to create uh, videos for my YouTube channel, and uh, suddenly you've made a whole bunch of videographers here, and so there, then suddenly there's a, a lot of videography happening. So um, go and go and back the the Patreon things, um, and that's how you get more of what you want. Uh, speaking of which, there's Josiah. He's our current uh, resident videographer and greenhouse builder. So he'll be making video just as soon as the greenhouse is done. And I know a few of you were in on the call uh, yesterday afternoon where we were seeing uh, some of the the ladder steps happening at the greenhouse. So it, the, the freeze finally went away and a bunch of activity happened up at the greenhouse this week. And uh, so um, that's that project is about to get wrapped up. Yay! Yeah. Oh, yay! Yeah. Yeah. All right. Anything else that we want to talk about in this podcast about those ten pages? Hmm. No. Well, if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about. The Mighty, the Glorious, the Amazing Sepulcher, Homesteading, and Permaculture all the time. All the time. All the time. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.